will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray one more time together. Please be seated. Once again, Father, we thank you that we can come into your holy presence. Lord, as your sons and daughters, as those who have been purchased through the blood of God the Son, our Lord and our Savior. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can trust that you hear us. Lord, not because of any goodness that's in us, but because of the goodness of your Son. Lord, we thank you that we can, can come and know that you hear us, not through, through having all the right words, but because again, of your Son, of his, his intercession for us, of your Holy Spirit's intercession for us, and of the, the perfect prayers of Jesus that have been credited to our account, and, and of the fact that, that he died to take away the guilt for our own prayerlessness. Father, we thank you that you hear us, not through having an abundance of words, or not through having, uh, having just, just empty phrases that we, we heap up on top of each other, but Lord, again, we thank you that hear us because of Christ. Lord, we thank you that you hear us as, as our sovereign heavenly Father. And Lord, we know that, that you know what we need before we even ask. But Lord, yet you have called us to come into your presence. Lord, we thank you that you delight to hear from your children. And so Lord, we come to you as your children, asking that you would hear our prayers. Amen. This morning we're going to be diving into our study of what is called the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6, 5 to 15. This passage is central to the Sermon on the Mount, which you can find in your Bible from Matthew chapter 5 to chapter 7. And this is unquestionably the greatest sermon that has ever been delivered. Not my sermon, but Jesus' sermon. Jesus preached this sermon early in his ministry at the height of his popularity. And although he was preaching to the assembled crowds, Jesus was focusing specifically on his disciples, especially the twelve. And what Jesus was doing throughout the sermon, he was contrasting the false teaching of the Pharisees with the true ethic of his kingdom. He was demonstrating how the Pharisees got it wrong and how his followers should get it right. In chapter 5, Jesus was opposing and correcting the false teaching of the Pharisees, specifically with respect to the law. 
And now in, verse, in chapter 6, he is directly opposing their false religious practice. Now the Pharisees had a reputation for sanctity, for, for being set apart for the worship of God. That was the, the external reputation of the Pharisees. The word Pharisee actually means separatist. They, they were proud of the fact that they were separate from, from the, the common masses. But in their stringent moral code and, and focus on external rules, they had added to the Word of God. And they had really undermined its true meaning. The Pharisees had a system of 613 laws beyond what the Word of God teaches, and, and this external obedience could only lead to a cold, heartless religion devoid of true worship. Jesus had thrown down the gauntlet in chapter 5, verse 20, saying, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, have you ever struggled with, with that verse and, and thought, wow, they were, I know I did, I thought, well, the Pharisees, they were, they were really good guys, right? They were, they were really obedient. And I thought, I'm not anything like, like those Pharisees. And, Praise God as I began to learn more from God's Word. I'm not like one of those Pharisees. Their religion, their obedience was all external to themselves. They had no real heart for God. They were not motivated by love for God. Well, now in chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus picks up the language of chapter 5, verse 20, saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And Jesus then outlines three different areas of religious activity. Giving, praying, and fasting. They're examples of, of what it means to practice your righteousness. And it, it served to expose the hearts, the heart motives behind religious behavior, especially that of the Pharisees. Those three things were, were extremely important to them. Giving and praying and fasting. And, and, and those things even remain important to this day. But the way that, that people practice these, these, religious, uh, these religious things really reveals what's going on in their hearts. And so in, in this section, in verses 5 to 15, again commonly called the Lord's Prayer, Jesus was teaching his first disciples and all disciples to this day what it means to pray. As I explained last week, I'm going to be focusing and, and referring to this passage throughout our study for the next several weeks as the model prayer. Because in this, in this prayer, Jesus wasn't giving us a, a prayer to repeat verbatim. He was, he was giving us a framework for prayer. He was giving us a guide to prayer. And so as such, this, this passage provides us really with a, a perfect introduction of, of what it means to pray through Scripture, to pray God's Word back to God. But before Jesus tells us how to pray, He tells us how not to pray in verses 5 to 8. And Jesus identifies two ways here that you are not to pray. Do not, be pray, do not pray to be seen by others in verses 5 and 6. Do not pray with vain repetition in verses 7 and 8. So first of all, verses 5 and 6, do not pray to be seen by others. Jesus says in verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Hypocrite is an offensive word. 
It's an offensive word, and Jesus uses it here as well as in verse 2 and verse 16. Don't be like the hypocrites. Now, this was not lost on his hearers. They all knew exactly who Jesus was talking about. Imagine the stifled gasp of the common people listening as Jesus hurled this, con this condemnation, appropriate as it was, on the religious leaders of the time. Jesus was pointing this at the Pharisees. Imagine the anger that welled up in the hearts of the Pharisees as he exposed them for what they were. Jesus then describes them, and the people would have known full well that this is what they did. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. The Pharisees were concerned with appearances. They, they seemed to be very religious with their, their long robes and their long prayers. And they looked pretty good from the outside, but their hearts were rotten. That's why Jesus charged, convicted, and sentenced them in Matthew 23 with the words, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness, so that you're outward, you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So by that point in his ministry, the gloves are off. And Jesus is... is is directly heading to a confrontation with the Pharisees that he knows, at least in the physical sense, that he's going to lose. Jesus was, was showing the Pharisees, or he was trying to, to, in one sense, goad the Pharisees in order to, to leading him to the Romans to be crucified. But all through Jesus' ministry, he's, he's exposing the false religion of the Pharisees. And especially, that's, that's what's true here in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we need to understand the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer specifically in, in light of that context. Jesus continues in verse 5. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And again, Jesus repeats the, the same words in verses 2 and verse 16. The Pharisees have their reward. What reward do you think it, it was that the Pharisees received? The applause of men. The applause of men. Men would, would praise them for, their, for, for, for their, their supposed sanctity, but they were not receiving praise from God who looked at their hearts. A pretense of prayer might impress people, but it will never impress God. He who looks at the heart knows and judges rightly. They have their reward, and it is a worthless reward at that. Sure, it's nice to have people compliment you. It's nice to have people say nice things about you, but, but in this sense here, when it was really, when they were just doing that, Praying for that purpose, it is of no eternal significance. The praise of men is a fleeting thing. Think about Hollywood celebrities that are, that are in one minute and out the next. Or, or think about how on, on YouTube a, a video can, can get millions of, of, of views and then a month later you never hear from it again. But the praise of man is fleeting. People are fickle. You never know what they're going to like or for how long. But what God likes never changes because God never changes. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. 
Although Jesus is clearly rebuking the hypocrisy of the Pharisees here, there is a great danger if we only read it as a censure of the Pharisees and fail to let it expose us, our heart. Jesus was condemning the Pharisees, but he was not just condemning the Pharisees. He's saying, don't be like them. Don't be like the hypocrites. To ignore this fact, as as Martin Lloyd-Jones warns, is to miss the whole point of the teaching here, which is our Lord's devastating exposure of the terrible effects of sin upon the human soul, especially sin in the form of self and pride. In other words, we all come under the scrutiny of this teaching. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls this passage one of the most searching and humbling in the entire realm of Scripture. This is not hyperbole. Because it is here, this, this teaching of Jesus, specifically here on prayer, that we find our hearts exposed. Sin, Lloyd-Jones continues, is something that follows us all the way, even into the very presence of God. We need to acknowledge that even our most spiritual moments are tainted by sin. The confession of the Valley of Vision is true of us all. It said, my my best prayers are stained with sin. Is God pleased with your prayers? Husbands, imagine going to a florist to buy a big bouquet for your wife. And you, you strut into the store... Now, I hope, men, that this is not just something you imagine. I hope you actually do this sometimes. Not the strutting part, but I hope you do buy your wife flowers sometimes. But imagine strutting into the store, and you, and you buy your wife a, a big bouquet of flowers, and, and you, you make a point of telling everybody what a good husband you are for, for buying these flowers for your wife. And then you don't want to go straight home. You figure, I, I want more people to see what a good husband I am, so you go to the coffee shop. And, and when you go to the coffee shop, as you order your coffee, you put the flowers there on, on the counter, and, and again, tell everybody, look what I bought for my wife. What a great guy I am. And then you, you sit down at your table, and you display the bouquet prominently on the table. You adjust it just right, and as you're sipping your coffee, you're looking over the rim of your coffee cup to see people looking at you. Do you think your wife is going to be honored? Is going to be blessed if that's what's in your heart? How often are we like that with our prayers? That we're more aware of ourselves and, and of, of, of how our prayers sound. And it doesn't just have to happen that you can do this privately too. You could be praying and, and be thinking, wow, oh, that was pretty good. Yeah, look, I, sp- I spent a whole 10 minutes in prayer. Wow, look at me. Give yourself a pat on the back. You can be focused on yourself instead of focusing on God in the very moment when you're meant to be focused on God. We must pray for our prayers. As Robert Murray McShane taught, pray that you may pray to God and not to the ears of men. Pray for your prayers. Pray that God would help you to pray prayers that are are honoring to Him. But did you know that your prayers will never be good enough? I said earlier, even your best prayers are stained with sin. We need the gospel. We, we need forgiveness. 
We need the righteousness of Christ, the righteous prayers in this case of Christ, credited to our account. We need to, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily because, because that's really the point of the, of the Sermon on the Mount is that God's standards are so high that, that you will never, through your own efforts, ever, ever, ever be able to please God enough. You will never be obedient enough. You understand the depths of sin in your own heart. And so it's a call to belief in the gospel. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to faith in Christ. It's a, it's a call to look to Christ's righteousness who obeyed for us. Christ's perfect standard. Christ's perfect life. Christ's perfect prayers credited to the account of those who have repented and put their faith in Him. And then that in turn feeds your prayer life. And when you understand the depths of God's forgiveness and the, the, the glory of the, that divine transaction, then it makes you want to pray more. It feeds your prayer life. But we don't just need that. We also need the intercession of Jesus for us. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ lives to make intercession for you, that He is right now, at this very moment, interceding before the throne of God on your behalf. And we also need the Holy Spirit who is interceding for us all according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit is also interceding for you before the throne of God. And that's how we can know that our prayers are accepted, even our weak and pitiful prayers. But we don't just sit there. We're not content to say, well, you know what, I've got a pretty shoddy prayer life but that's okay because God's going to forgive me. No. Because God is going to forgive you, it makes you want to pray more. It makes you want to grow in your prayer life. And, and again, it, it, almost every single person in this church has testified that they need to grow a lot in their prayer life. And I praise God for that. That is, is a testimony of the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, giving you that desire to draw close to God in prayer. J.C. Ryle asks several, several questions that he says we should use daily to ply our souls, to expose our hearts. He asks in prayer, where are our hearts? Are we doing all as to the Lord and not to men? Galatians 1.10 Do we realize the eye of God? Do we simply and solely desire to please Him who sees in secret? Matthew 6.6 6 and by whom all actions are weighed, 1 Samuel 2, 3. Are we sincere? These are, are, are ways that, that we need to examine our prayers. It's, it's not enough if, if you have the outward form of, if you've come through the series and, and, and say, okay, I, I know I can, I can pray scripture and I can pray God's word back to God, but your heart is still far from God when you're praying, it's of no avail. God isn't looking for, for external forms. God wants you. He wants your heart. We know that we all fall immeasurably short of God's standard. Yet by God's grace, disciples are seeking to honor the Lord with our prayers. And so Jesus tells us how in verse 6. He says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. So one way to avoid the temptation of, of praying to be seen is to focus on private prayer. 
Jesus, now, he wasn't teaching that, that we need to literally go into a little closet and close the door. What, what Jesus was teaching here is that you need to focus on your individual, on your personal prayer life. You were talking the, the other night, I can, I can usually tell somebody who spends a lot of time in, in private prayer by how their, their prayers sound when they pray publicly. Because quite often, the... the, the and again, I, I can't claim to see everything that's going on in someone's heart, but, but, but you, can, you can usually tell when somebody is really delights to spend time in God privately because then they're going to delight to spend time with God publicly. Jesus is not saying here that, that we should never pray in public. He's saying that that should be our focus, and, and when we do pray in public, the, the, the public aspect of that shouldn't be the focus, that, that God should be the focus. But you're not self-conscious or others-conscious when you pray, but you are God-conscious when you pray. Now, people in our culture are, I would say, probably generally less inclined to seek approval from others through, through public prayer than they would have been when Jesus first preached this sermon. But I think we're more likely to see the reverse of that in our culture. That, that people tend to, to not want to pray in public because they're worried about what people think of them. And I think the root cause is often the same. I think that often people in our day do not pray in public because they are worried about what others are saying or going to think about them. They're worried about the approval of man over the approval of God. And here's what I mean. They're worried about the fact that when they pray, that, that they aren't going to sound eloquent, or that they, they aren't, or that they might say something wrong, and so they just keep their mouth closed, and they will not pray in public. I want to ask you this: When you have the opportunity to pray, are you more aware of the Lord or of others in the room? Are you more concerned with how your prayers might sound to other people or to God? Now don't get me wrong, I understand that there are people who are, are more naturally introverted and they, they don't like the idea of praying in public, I get that. But at the same time, if you would consider yourself to be introverted, don't be content to stay exactly as you are now. Seek to grow. You know, there's a like a lot of psychology has actually slipped into the into the Christian church, and so we tend to think of ourselves as as static and of our personality types as as just being a certain way, and and that, that we're never going to grow beyond that. But have you thought about the fact that you're predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, even in your personality type? Jesus Christ was the, the perfectly balanced man. Yes, he was the God-man. But, but he had the perfect balance of, of every attribute and of, of every, every characteristic that, that a people can have except, except for sinfulness. And so if, if you are here as an introvert, then don't be, don't be content to say, well, I'm never going to be able to do this. Now, Nobody here is going to, to force you to, to pray in public. 
And nobody here, I, I trust, is, is, going, is going to, to make you feel bad about, about not praying in public. I just want to challenge you to consider how you might be able to grow. Not all of us are, are called to, to be, be public orators. But, but you can still pray. And you can come to a prayer meeting, even if you don't ever open your mouth to pray. You can, you can be praying with the people who are there without ever actually even saying a word. But one thing that my mentor used to say that really stuck with me, he says that God often requires of us what we're not. God often requires of us what we're not. So if we're not, if we're naturally a certain way and God and God leads you into circumstances and situations where, where you can more where you can rely on him and, and do things that you never ever would have thought you would do. And he gets the glory. He gets the glory. I never would have, have thought of, of myself as 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 a, as a preacher. Like most people, I was terrified of public speaking. Terrified of public speaking. And I remember that the very first time that, that I was asked to preach, I was in my late twenties um, at, at my church in Australia. It was a, it was a relatively large church, and I was talking about growth through pain. And when I was preparing the sermon. Before I doing my, my study, I was fine. I wasn't nervous at all. But, but when I got to church, I was so scared that I was going to get up and actually speak. And, and maybe some people can relate to this when you've, you've gotten up to speak, especially when you've gotten up to preach. I was terrified. But then the, the song that we sang directly before I got up to preach, and the, the, the guy who chose the song didn't know what my topic was, but it was exactly what I was going to be talking about and I realized this is not my message. This is God's message. And God gave me a peace that, that I was able to, to be able to, to speak his word in a, in a, I won't say perfectly unselfconscious way, but, but more focused on God and his glory and what the people needed to hear rather than on myself and what people thought of me. Now, I'm not saying that, that I, I, I've got definitely room to grow in that area. But this is God's message. And the same when you pray. It's, it's prayers to God. We need to be concerned about Him. And when God does that in us, enables us to do that, He gets the glory. Jesus concludes the statement by saying, And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is it again in verses 4, 6, and 18, where the statement is repeated almost verbatim. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. The omniscient God sees all that you do in secret. He even sees your heart. But, but he's not just a distant God. He's your Father. He's your Father. And so you can go to God confident that as your child, as, as, as his child, that he is hearing your prayers. That, and that what you need, as we'll see in a moment, what you need, he will provide for you. We're going to talk a lot more next week uh, about the fact that God is our Father, but he is going to reward your heartfelt prayers. Now, there's a, there's a future and a present sense when we think of reward here. 
in part that the present reward is, is answers to prayer. Part of the, the present reward is that, that God hears those prayers and answers those prayers. And the, the future reward is the crown of glory. And, and as we know, when, when, we, when we come before Christ, and what, what are we going to do with those crowns? That reward, we're going to cast them at the feet of Jesus. And say, this is you, it's, it's your glory. The, the, this is the reward. And, and so, so there's a sense, of, in that sense, as a, as a present and a future part of the reward. But, but the greatest reward, both, both present and future, the greatest reward is the presence of God himself. Augustine once said that faith is to believe what you do not see. The reward of this faith is to see what you believe. That's the reward of your faith, to see what you believe. You will see God. And that's your great reward. It's your greatest reward. In faith, we, we draw close to God, and God rewards us with his presence. This elevates us above the, the mundane, natural, personal concerns that, that we have, especially over, over what people think of us and what people think of our prayers. Thomas Watson declared, a godly man is elevated above all earthly objects. The person who walks with God must ascend very high. A dwarf cannot walk among the stars, nor can a dwarfish, earthly soul walk with God. The Pharisees thought that they were spiritual giants, but they were pipsqueaks. It's the humble saints on their knees who are giants ascending to the heavenlies, ascending to the very presence of God. And when you understand that, when you understand that, that Jesus is the treasure that you seek and your reward is your relationship with, with Him, not just in eternity, but now, and as you live life for, for eternity with Him, for the presence of Jesus, and you, will, you know that you will dwell with Him forevermore, then this feeds your prayer life. It, it makes you eager to enter into His presence. The praise of man ceases to have any bearing on your behavior. And if somebody does praise you for something, then you become quick to defer it to God. To give him the glory because you know that he is the one who has done it. He is the one who has enabled you to do it. And he's the one that you are ultimately doing it for. So don't pray like the hypocrites. Now Jesus turns to another way not to pray. Don't pray with vain repetition. Verse 7. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many prayers. It seems that the Pharisees had picked up on the practice of the Gentiles of repeating their prayers over and over again in order to try to manipulate God to hear them. Reminded here of Elijah and the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. Elijah summoned the, the 400 prophets of Baal to, to Mount Carmel for a showdown. He challenged them to make a sacrifice and then to call out on their God to send down fire to consume their offering. The prophets of Baal prayed all day and nothing happened. They even cut themselves in an, in an attempt to get the attention of their God, but it was to no avail. 
prayers of, of many religions around the world are the same today. Hindus repeat a mantra. Sounds or words that they believe have spiritual power. Buddhists put these mantras on prayer wheels that they spin and they think that, that spinning the wheels is somehow efficacious so that they don't even need to say the words. Muslims praying the, the Salat. They believe it's the second pillar of Islam. They, they face Mecca and pray five times a day, bowing and, and repeating ritual prayers. Roman Catholics use rosary beads to count the repetition of specific prayers. And it's sadly ironic that one of the key prayers that they pray in the rosary is the prayer that Jesus is about to introduce in Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13, what they call the Our Father prayer. And so Jesus, it, it, they, this teaching that, that Jesus is talking about, not using vain repetition, but they're using the very prayer, the model prayer that he gives as vain repetition. Now there's three main errors with this. The first is self-focus. They think that the power in their prayers come from themselves and their words. The second is that they think it comes from speaking certain words like a magic spell or an incantation. And the third is the vanity of it all, that they're merely repeating words that are just empty of all meaning. But again, we miss the point if we think that Jesus is simply criticizing false religions. He says in verse 8, do not be like them. Jesus is not concerned here with pagan prayers. He is concerned with Christian prayers. First, listen to carefully to what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying that it's wrong to pray for the same things repeatedly. In Luke 18, Jesus tells the parable of the persistent widow to teach that we should always pray and not give up. So keep praying for that unsaved loved one. Keep praying for that besetting sin to be removed from your life. The problem here is not so much with the repetition, but with the vain repetition. With the vain repetition. The problem is that it's in vain. That the words really don't mean anything. They aren't really praying to God. They're just, just making sounds with their mouths. And for some people, adding the words in Jesus' name at the end of their prayers is vain repetition. Now, when Jesus says we should, we should pray all of our prayers in Jesus' name, he, he's not saying specifically that, that we need to say the words at the end of all our prayers in Jesus' name. Is there anything wrong with that? No. If you want to say that at the end of your prayers, and you're, you're really saying that because you're, you're, you're conscious of the fact that you're praying through the, the blood and the, the life and the, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, then by all means, pray in Jesus' name. But we are not commanded every time to pray to tack on in Jesus' name at the end of it. If you read through the, the prayers that are in the Bible, you, you don't see that being repeated again and again. So if we just tack that on and we just say, and, and I've heard people who, who do it so often, and nobody here, I'm not thinking of anybody here specifically, but I've heard people just, they, they almost slur the words, in Jesus' name, at the end, at the end of, their, of their prayer, because they're just so used to saying that it means nothing to them anymore. They say it, 
but they don't mean it. Even some true Christians can use this model prayer as a vain repetition. They, they pray this prayer, and again, this was not meant to be, to be, a, to be prayed verbatim. There's nothing necessarily wrong with praying that, but that's not what this prayer was for. But they just pray this prayer over and over again, that they just say it without even thinking about the words. It's vain repetition. A repetition is vain if you think that you are manipulating God with your prayers. If your focus is, is on how good or how faithful or how long your prayer is, not on the one you are praying to, then it is vain repetition. Repetition is, is vain if you just say the same things over and over again so that the words become empty. They, ju they just become a habit. I know when I was a kid, I was, I was taught the prayer, you, you probably know it, this practice scared me, but, but now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. But in my mind, that just became one word, I lay down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. I didn't actually pray the words, I was just repeating what I had been taught. Vain repetition. You know, my, my habit has been when I wake up in the morning to get down on my knees and, and to, to thank God for a good night's sleep. But in scrutinizing my own prayer life in preparation for this sermon series, I realized that that too had just become a habit. That, that it just became words that I say when I, when I get down on my knees to pray. It's a vain repetition. Can you relate to that? Can, can, can you think of things that you pray for regularly, habitually, where, where you're not even really there anymore? You're not really paying attention. You're just repeating the words that you always prayed. Many of you will be sitting down to a Thanksgiving meal this evening or, or on Monday evening. But what, what a great opportunity to reboot what a great opportunity to, when you, when you sit down to pray for that meal, to thank the Lord for that meal, to really pray. You know, to, to really be thankful to God and, and to, to have an, an, an earnest, heartfelt prayer. And I would probably not recommend a really long prayer um, for your Thanksgiving dinner because then dinner's going to be getting cold and people might start to get a little bit wondering if you're actually doing the first part of, of this thing again. But, but to be actually really praying to God. To be actually, this is an opportunity for you to, be, to, to, to become consciously unselfconscious. To become consciously God-conscious in your prayers. I picked on husbands earlier. I'm going to use wives as an illustration this time. Wives, imagine that there's, there's something that you would like your husband to, to do for you. Say, say to fix a, a leaking faucet. And, and you, you're, you can't do it, and you're really not confident that, that he's going to do it, or that he's going to do it well, but, but you know it needs to get done. So, so you say to him, Honey, I love you. Please fix the faucet. And he doesn't do it. He says it again, honey, I love you, please fix the faucet. And, and all the time, honey, I love you, please fix the faucet. You, you're, you're not really thinking that you love your husband in that moment. You're just, just using those words, honey, I love you, in order to soften him up so that you can nag him to get him to do what you want him to do. 
Now, now the husband should fix the faucet. But I think that maybe the, the, the sound of the dripping faucet would be more pleasant to listen to. Are we like that with God? Are, are we trying to, to manipulate God through our prayers to get him to do what he want, what we want him to do? But Jesus goes on to say, he says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Your father is omniscient. He, he knows the end from the beginning. He knows what is best for you. He, he knows what you need even before you come to him to ask him. But he wants you to come to him because he desires that intimate relationship with you. He wants you to come into his presence in prayer. He wants you to, to pour out your heart before him and to, to, to talk to him. Your father wants a relationship with you, so he calls you to pray to him. Your father knows what is good for you. This point comes up repeatedly in the, in the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 11, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And in Matthew 6, 25, Jesus says, Do not be anxious about your life, about your material needs, about your food and shelter and clothing, because your heavenly Father, Jesus says, provides for the birds. He says similarly in, in Matthew 10, 29, Jesus, where Jesus teaches that not a sparrow can fall to the ground apart from your Father. So here in Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching that, that, that you are of more value than many birds. So God is going to care for you as his child. He uses the example that, that, Jesus, that the Father clothes the grass. And how much more will your Father, than he says, provide for you? Jesus here is arguing from the lesser to the greater. If he's providing for, for mere animals and plants, how much more is he going to provide for his beloved children? You can take comfort in the fact that God will provide for all of your needs. He will never fail you. He will never hurt you. He showed his love for you in sending his son to die for you. Read you Romans 8.32 to yourself. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God crushed his son so that you could be adopted into his family. God did all of that so that you could become his child. You do not need to manipulate him with your prayers. In Christ, he is your father. Talk to him. Trust him. So Jesus says in this passage, do not pray to be seen by others. Do not pray with vain repetition. He says instead, in verse 9, pray like this. Pray like this. And then he introduces the model prayer. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to be walking through and, and to address these, the, the main points of this prayer. First, the, 
the introduction where he, where he prays, where he addresses, where he teaches us to address God as our Father, and then six petitions. Six petitions, our Father, then your name, your kingdom, your will, our bread, our forgiveness, and our protection. Again, Jesus was not giving us here a, a rote prayer to follow, but a guide to our prayer. John MacArthur makes this point powerfully. He says, it is not a prayer to be made a ritual. It is a model for every prayer that you ever pray, a skeleton on which to put on flesh. He says that this prayer includes, includes all of the, the elements that were in Jewish prayers, love and praise and gratitude and thanksgiving and a recognition of God's holiness, a desire to please and obey God, confession of sin and a pure heart, unselfishness, perseverance and humility. Jesus was unfolding here the, the true riches and depth that we can have in prayer. Jesus, as he did throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount, is, is taking it deeper. He's showing what God's word really means. He's showing us here what it really means to pray. Now with one sermon for each of these points, we're, we're really not going to be able to plumb the depths. We're really only dipping a toe in the water. Kenneth Stevenson says that the Lord's Prayer is a prayer with the atmosphere and teaching of the Gospels embedded in every single syllable. 